Hi, welcome back to Cycling Talk Podcast with me, Georgia Mahoney. In this episode, I'm joined by founder of Lacole, Yanto Barker. Yanto has competed for Great Britain at the Junior Worlds and started out as a pro rider in the late 90s. He's also competed in several Tour of Britain events and has represented Wales in the Commonwealth Games. I'm really excited to learn more about what inspired Yanto to start Lacole. Thank you for joining me today, Yanto. Thank you for having me. What's your first memory of being on a bike? Well, I'm not sure if my very first memory is a memory or the memory of a story someone told me. But um, when I was about three, I had a trike. (laughs) And um, I tried to cycle it to town, which was about eight miles away. So, like I said, this is a true story. Whether I genuinely remember it or if I remember the song, the someone telling me that story, that that is my first memory of a bike, mm-hmm. um, which kind of makes me laugh because I just had no concept of fear or distance or anything. And I was like, I'm going to go and buy some sweets in town. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the first bike that you remember being really excited about? That's a good question. I think... The first bike I was really excited about was, so I had quite a difficult relationship with my dad, but probably the most bike, the bike I was most excited about was one that he bought me. And mm. I remember the reason he was, a, he was difficult was he was very unreliable. So as a kid, it's difficult to have someone who never turns up on time, doesn't make football practice, doesn't come to school plays, you know, doesn't do that kind of thing. But he did do one good thing, which was buy me this bike when I was about six or seven and it was a bmx i remember it it was uh, yellow and red and i absolutely loved it and i played forever on it doing skids and wheelies and jumps and all sorts like six and seven year olds do so you moved to devon and joined a local cycling team what do you remember about your time with them and your first race yeah so the moving to Devon was the first time I took cycling seriously in a competitive way. So I'd always had a lot of energy as a kid. I'd always loved two wheels bikes. We couldn't afford, you know, go-karts or motorbikes or anything. So bicycles was all we had. And Devon was the first time I met some people and a, and a kind of structure in a team or a club who helped me. So, um, you know, I come from a single parent background. My mum brought myself and my sister up uh, very modestly and, you know, money was always tight. So it was difficult to get, you know, the clothes you need, the bikes you need, even spare tyres and inner tubes and things was just really difficult. So when I went to Devon and we got joined up with a club, they recognised that I had a bit of talent and I started to be helped and supported in a material way, which was really, really helpful. And it enabled me to then just concentrate on the exercise and and training which obviously is for a really young and ambitious and motivated kid if you take the barriers out of the way then I advanced quite quickly and I think the time that I remember most to depict that period in my life was um, I did a race called the Bovey Tracy Carnival Road Race and I won and I won on a beautiful August afternoon in front of um lots of my family and I think the reason why I'm sort of picking that now is I remember feeling the kind of success for the Mm. first time it was only small it was only a small race but it was locally um you know fairly well supported and all the best riders from Devon came and like I said because it was such a beautiful day it was like wow this is a this is an amazing thing to do I would I would love to concentrate on this for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and that's kind of basically what I did. Um, I'll, I'll lead on just to say that about that time, I was doing my A-levels. I'd just finished school, so I was 17. Mm. And I'd spent all summer training with another professional called Jeremy Hunt, who used to live in Dartington. And it was amazing having you know, every day of a summer holiday, I could go and do as far as I wanted, you know, back in the day, we didn't have mobile phones and I barely had 50p to take with me if I needed a drink or or something to eat on the other side of Dartmoor. And we would do hundred mile rides. And after that summer holidays, I went back to college for about two days and was basically sad, so sad to leave 
the cycling behind and start going back to college and spend all day in a classroom. I mean, you should probably put your hands on your ears when I tell you this because I don't recommend it. <laughs> but I, I left college at 17 and I didn't complete my A-levels. And, um, and I said to my parents, I want to be a professional cyclist and I'm going to leave college. And I said, I'm not suggesting that I leave to do nothing. I've got something more important to do. I really want to give it my best shot and I can't do that with it being compromised by having to go to college and try and squeeze training in around, you know, because I was going to Exeter. So it was half an hour, 40 minutes of travel mm. as well. And then I was training in the dark and it was just really, really hard work. So I basically packed in school and became a full time cyclist with a very small part time job one or two days a week just to help help pay the bills. So, yeah, that that was that was a really kind of poignant time in my life where a big decision got made and that set the track I was on then for the next well forever really because I still work in the industry yeah it sounds like you were really motivated and obviously you said that you started sort of riding competitively quite late do you think that affected your ability at all starting at a later age uh no I think it's a very delicate balance for under 18s I would say to navigate a path that is their own choice not mum and dad's choice and that happens quite a lot is getting the best out of themselves to show their true potential at a young age so I'm talking like 14 anything from up to 17 or 18 years old you really need to stay in a place that is fun for you Mm. and I've had parents come up to me since as an adult and ask what advice would I give their kids and their kids are like 12 and 13 years old and I would say just enjoy it like there is there is nothing else for you to do apart from enjoy it at this age because there's a really big change in your life when your hobby becomes your job and I genuinely would skip days of school to go training and then when you get paid you can't skip any days of training rain shine snow sleet five hours, six hours, seven hour days, you know, uh, six, 700 mile weeks, you know, that's a long way to be going and often on your own, you know, so yes, training camps are lovely. You get looked after, your bike gets cleaned, you get fed, you get supplements, you get, you know, nice hotel. But I would say 75% of the time you're training, you're on your own. And I was in Devon. So I was going around Dartmoor. It was, you know, sleeting headwind, 50 miles from home. I've got no one. I don't have a phone in my pocket. I have barely got any money and it's not that much fun. You do it because it's called a type two type of um, satisfaction, which is, I know I don't like this right now, but I'm going to appreciate that it's going to provide me the basis of fitness that I need to compete, which I really do like. And I want to win. And I, mm. and I like the, the accolades that you get when you, you do well in the sport or in anything really. So, um, so yeah, for young kids I don't think there's a problem and the last thing I would say about that is genuinely my belief is talent itself is 90% of a person's ability so the the talent you're born with the genetics of your muscles and your bones and your weight and your you know all those things your vo2 lung capacity heart capacity um, that is what is going to make you good or not and Training only really gives you the top 10% or 5% on top of that. So you can, you can dial that in at 21, 22, 23. There are certain elements of context that I would say um, if you are cycling semi-regularly through your formative years, so from 12 till 18, you do develop cycling-specific muscle uh, tone. And I think that would help in the long run. But it's a really small amount. If you're a dedicated, ambitious and committed, disciplined athlete, you will make up most of that anyway. So um, there's no there's no hindrance to start at 18 or 19, I don't think. I live also in Devon and there's so many great places to ride, but I do find that there's a lot less people to ride with. And in the, the Southwest area, the, there's the type of people that I compete with, but some of my friends like live in St. Ives down at the bottom of Cornwall. So it's really difficult to find people to train with down here. Yeah, I know what you mean. Something um, maybe to help make it interesting if you haven't got lots of friends around, which obviously is preferable, 
is um you know making courses for yourself or mm. uh, and timing yourself and just so one of the things that i really love is i like to just set a marker of my best and then make that better yeah. and genuinely i find that such a rewarding process i do that at work as well by the way so it's the same principle same approach same attitude is about just do your best and then look for ways of how to make it better and i say this to teammates of mine i say this to friends i have that i cycle with semi-regularly at the moment cycling is an interesting activity in that speed is made up of capacity but also intellect and what i mean by that is you need to think through the best approach you need to design a way that is going to help you notice when you did something really well so you can do it again or when you did something that wasn't how you expected, you should look back at what was it that I thought was going to make me better about that, that I was wrong about. Because that way, every single thing that you do, every step that you take is improving you, is building your experience, building your understanding, which if you start now, honestly, you will be streets ahead of your friends. And it's really common for exceptional people to have not had a huge social um, network or even a, a big social network, or even a regular social network. Think about musicians and how much time it takes to learn the instruments, the piano or the violin or something. They are literally spending eight hours a day learning that, and that is what is giving them the progress. So while, you know, friends are fun, but when you grow up, it'll be something else that you will be rewarded by, not, not necessarily just friends. So I think this is a great opportunity to think about that. Use your intellect, engage it in what you're doing now because you can do that in a way that isn't going to take anything away from what you're doing and is going to give you ingredients and tools that will serve you as an adult like hand you know hand over fist like time and time again it is just such a important thing that you would be surprised how many adults don't get it and are distracted by social or distracted by going out drinking or you know, girls or boys, if you're into that kind of thing, you know, like, you know, it's just, there's so much to it. You, you've got a great opportunity. And I think, um, you know, take the time to think about how can I make this better? How can I be better? What would be, you know, what's interesting about this? What, what is different? What's, what's new that I didn't understand? You know, I used to write a diary at your age. In fact, I wrote a diary from your age all the way until I was, well, I still write a diary now, actually. I call it a business diary. And it's not the type of diary you'd think about, you know, dear diary, I feel a bit up or down or whatever. It's more like the subjects that we approach today at work, what I was expecting to happen and if it happened or not. And I think it's a really powerful tool to write a diary and then go back and read what you said. Yeah. You will learn a huge amount about yourself. You will understand things that you read a month later that while you wrote them down, you didn't realize that's what you were thinking. And then a month later, you are like, ah, oh, that's what I was doing. And I felt a bit nervous. And that was the feeling that I didn't quite grasp what it was, but it was something and I could feel it inside me like a little seed or something. And then it's not till a month later, you realize and you can identify it. I think that's really good advice. I'll try that. <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah. In 1998, you won the British Junior National Road Race Championships. Can you tell me about that race? And did you expect to do so well or was it a surprise? Yes, I remember the race very, very well. Um, again, it was another beautiful day in Stevenage, which is just north of London. Um, and it was an incredibly long drive from Devon with very, very bad traffic. It was in July. And um, I did expect to do well. In fact, I probably was going there to try and win it. I knew that, you know, whether I admitted it or not. Um, to other people that's what I had in my head and because it came in July and we'd already been racing most of we'd we'd raced each other as juniors already since April and there were people you know good riders like Bradley Wiggins who were there and other riders but I knew I could I could compete and if the course was good and I could get my tactics right then I had a really good chance so I was really pleased to win that you know there's something about Winning a national title and um, wearing a national team jersey that is very, very special. Almost nothing compares to it. And lots of riders that I've spoken to, you know, kind of agree that to be amongst the best in the country for your discipline at your age 
is is a real sign of achievement and it's something that after having retired I look back on very very fondly and feel very proud of my achievements you know wearing a jersey a GB jersey and winning a national title you know that's kind of written in the record books forever and I can go back and uh, a funny story I was actually in Cycling Weekly in the archives doing a little bit of work um, for uh, for a uh, like a bit of piece to camera on the on the on the coming season this was last year and in the archive I went to find the exact copy of Cycling Weekly that reported the win and I took a picture of myself with it you know how many years later 1998 to 2020 um, or 19 it might have been 2019 so it's a couple of years ago but yeah it was that's that's nice and it just shows that it's kind of there forever. So because of that win you went to the Junior Worlds was that the first time that you had raced outside of the UK? So no, it wasn't the first time I'd raced outside of the UK because in the same way I was racing with the UK juniors all year, the Worlds were held in October and I'd also been riding the Junior World Cup all, all that year as well. So I was, I was already uh, quite aware of the good guys. I knew I could do well and um, I knew the course suited me. So again, I went there with quite realistic hopes of a good result um lots of you know there's lots of good and bad luck happening in junior races a lot of crashes there's a lot of crazy crazy kids you know qu don't quite understand what a gap is yet because in a bunch a gap for your handlebars you know only needs to be a little bit wider than your handlebars but nothing's st staying still so those gaps they grow and they and they shrink and it takes experience to know what looks like a gap one second is no longer a gap the next second and juniors haven't learned how to do that yet so there's always lots of crashes <laughs> but fortunately I did crash uh, but fortunately I got back up and I was able to you know get to the finish in a good place and and get a good result. How did you find traveling around the country and across the world to all of these events? Uh, I quite liked it I I like a bit of variety in that respect. I love seeing the world. Um, I'm always interested and fascinated by architecture, even, you know, random things like just the way the mountains are or mm. the types of roads, the gradients. You know, UK roads are quite bumpy and grippy, especially where you live. I know <laughs> it quite well. Um, it's really hard, you know, and the climbs are steep and they normally go straight up. They don't do corners that much. Whereas you go to the continent and the Alps and the Pyrenees and things, they have really nice, smooth gradients. You can get a nice rhythm. Yes, they're a lot higher and it goes on a lot further, but, you know, it's kind of a different experience riding there. Um, and then even the culture. So, you know, the German culture versus the French culture versus the Italian culture. There's so much to absorb, you know, food and restaurants and, um, you know, towns and just everything. It's all like, I really found it fascinating and I absorbed as much as I could. And, you know, I speak French and I'm actually learning Italian um, at the moment. So even the language was interesting to me. And I would always try and learn a few words when I knew I was going to a certain country and mm -hmm. do my best to use it with the waitresses or, you know, the hotel staff or anyone, you know, do my best to try and engage with them. I found it really interesting. When you were 20, you moved to France. Why was that? Well, I, um, I came through the national team, but it was just before the real structure and investment had been put in by the lottery funding. So I'm probably two or three years too old to have really benefited from that. And at the time, the national team was really looking after track riders but not looking after road riders who didn't ride the track. If you were a track rider that rode the world, sorry, rode the road, then they did give you funding. They did give you um, support. And I found it really difficult because they weren't providing support for me and I wasn't interested in the track. So I didn't want to compromise my, you know, what made me excited about racing wasn't track racing. And I decided I could go to the continent and I went to France and uh, join a French team and actually take part in some of the best races and get recognized hopefully to move up into the pro ranks from there so it was quite a big decision actually and sometimes I think it was the right decision and sometimes I think it was the wrong decision but um, it was what it was and you know I'm grateful for my time in France I learned French and I had an, an, an amazing time and made some quite good friends as well you know and I think as well the thing about France and so I moved to France when I was 
just literally turned 20. I had a girlfriend in England and um, I didn't speak a word of French. So this is before internet, apart from internet cafes. So you could go to the internet cafe, but that was it. So I wrote letters home and I telephoned with a phone card, an international phone card that I had to save up for. So I was paid £30, equivalent to £30 a week on uh, the team that I raced for. And we got a house and a car and enough fuel to get about and go to races and do what we needed to do and buy the food. But the £30 a week was basically food and anything else, going out, which it, and it wasn't very much. So I'd spend £25 a week on the weekly grocery shop mm -hmm. and I would spend £5 a week on my telephone card to ring my girlfriend back home. And then in the middle of that, I would also write letters. So the reason I'm explaining all of that is it was a really, really tough time. There was no excess. It didn't have a single penny to my name, literally at the end of every week. And I remember after about a month thinking, do I really want to do this? I mean, this is super hard and there's no guarantees of success. I may not get a contract and I might go home. And it's just been really, really hard. So I kind of had to have a little word with myself after a month and go, look, you know, you've, if you're going to commit to this, you've got to commit to the long term. You can't expect it to happen in a month. And, you know, you've invested a lot into it already. I spent a couple of years already giving my best and doing my best and being really dedicated and committed to my training. And I think the reason why I wanted to explain that all of that is I, I think that need to, to just really be strong in my in myself, my personality and my my psychology to be strong, to stay committed and stay focused with no guarantees of success on such a minimum wage was something that I I think is like a muscle and it got strong because I I didn't give up, I didn't go home, lots of people did. And it really, really wasn't very easy. So I think that's been something that I'm grateful for ever since then. I've, I've been a strong person and I've had a strong character and I know I can take a lot of strain. And that's something that has definitely helped me achieve things later in my life. Yeah, it could have been so easy for you to, to sort of turn around and go home. But I think it's really great that you carried on because, I mean, look at everything you've achieved now, I think if people just are resilient then they don't know what good things could come from that in the future yeah definitely so going back to the young kids question about starting young or old you hit the nail on the head there with the word resilience is such an important characteristic and my wife and I talk about this about how can we make sure we we build in resilience to our children's personalities because you can have a talented person and a resilient person and the resilient person is always going to get back up again and keep going because a talented person is also going to encounter knockbacks and setbacks and difficulties. And I can tell you, I know firsthand I've met very, very talented people who did not last long in cycling because it's a very tough sport. And I think cycling is a good analogy for life in that life can be difficult and almost everybody, almost everybody is going to encounter really tough times and they're going to need to fall back on resilience to get through it, you know, get through it healthily without it breaking them and feeling like they can't cope. And, you know, there's lots of degrees of can't cope. So we won't go into all the details, but the resilience is the important aspect there. So you've competed in the Tour of Britain, including achieving a top 10 overall in 2005. So I've spoken to a few British riders who say that the Tour of Britain has changed quite a lot over the years. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think I did the very, very first new Tour of Britain because it used to be the Kellogg's Tour and it used to be um, uh, the Prue Tour. Um, uh, and then so I did the very first one in 2004 for the Welsh national team. And then I did uh, my last tour of Britain was 2015, I think. I didn't do every single one in the middle. And then I've also worked on the television side of the tour of Britain as the pundit alongside Matt Barbette, who is the anchor and commentator, not commentator, but the anchor presenter of the programme. And then you have commentators who talk about the race while it happens. And so I have a kind of, I've had a first-hand experience of the change in Tour of Britain. So going back to riding it myself and, and the top 10 in 2005, you know, that was a really great time because you had really big-time European pros coming here, you know, like Michael Rogers, who was, you know, went on to ride for Team Sky and 
you know, raced, I think, I can't remember exactly his best result in a Grand Tour, but like really serious, big time pros. And I was going up some of the hardest climbs in the UK in the front group with them, you know, kind of breathing as hard as I possibly could and sweating through my eyes and, you know, just digging in so deep to stay in the group and then looking around and seeing guys that I'd read about in Cycling Weekly when I was 14 or 15 years old and thinking, okay, this is cool. You know, this is, this was worth everything to work for. And then the other thing about the Tour of Britain is it's a home race, you know, so you had people knew who I was and they were clapping and I could hear my name and it was, you know, especially as the race progressed and I was doing well, it was just amazing. It's a really addictive experience um, that I really, really enjoyed. So I, I remember that very fondly from a, from a performance perspective. And I was also 25 years old thinking, you know, this could be the breakthrough that I needed. I could get that big world tour contract and, you know, this could be it genuinely. I was also thinking that in the back of my mind while I'm doing well, I'm like, this is, this is a solid result. This is good. You know, I've beaten everyone else in the country, the UK guys. And, um, and so that was kind of, you know, at the time that was like, okay, this is good. Still got a lot ahead of me and this will be the big step up that I've been looking for. Unfortunately that didn't happen, but um, I enjoyed the race at the time. And then I think the Tour of Britain has changed a lot. I think it became, um, I think it, it became more popular. You know, the crowds that we saw, uh, later in probably from 2012 onwards, you know, they were massive, huge, as big as any Tour de France stages, genuinely. Um, the fact that Britain's a bit smaller and a little bit more condensed, you know, everything is more spread out in France. So just the compactness of the country meant that the roads were full. And after 2012, cycling was a really popular sport. Spectators would come out, take days off, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. One of the one of the coolest things in cycling and road racing is riding past a school. I don't know if you've ever had a race come past your school, but little children make more noise than you believe possible, and you notice it on the bike. You know, when you go through a town, there's a school, and they absolutely shriek, you know, with their <laughs> absolute maximum, and you you just think, oh, that's so cool, you know, that they they got the time to come out of class and. They've watched the race go by because I remember being uh, 11 or 12 and watching the pre the Kellogg's tour come past my house. And it was like this fanfare, like a circus of cyclists going so fast, which was incredible by itself. And then all the cars coming past and the honking and tooting and like this rush of wind that you get in front of your face as you're standing next to the road and the, everything's going past. It's like it's so exhilarating. And it wasn't like it sunk in immediately for me, but then that was like a seed that got planted and it just grew and grew and grew. By the time I was 15, um, I was really, I loved cycling and I was kind of just dedicated to, that's what I wanted to do kind of thing. I really love being able to watch the races and it's really exciting that they've got some stages like finishing in, in Devon and in Cornwall this year because when they had a stage finishing in my local town a couple of years ago, everybody just came out, no matter whether they were interested in cycling or not, they all came out to see the event. And I actually saw you do a piece when when that race was happening and you were being filmed riding across the finish line. And I think it's just so cool that you're still involved in the Tour of Britain after all these years. Yeah, that's really nice. I think there's something interesting about that which is you basically when you retire you have to be satisfied with your career to mm -hmm. stay in the industry and if you're not being at a bike race as a retired cyclist would be a very very uncomfortable place to be it would make you feel quite down about not having achieved what you really wanted to and um you know not having come to terms with look, for better or for worse, for good luck or for bad luck, you did what you did, you did your best. And I'm really proud, proud to look back on my career and say, I genuinely did my best. And I do that in everything I do. Like, it's almost a compulsion in my personality is, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it my best. And if I can't give my best, then I'm not doing it. And, it. and it kind of, my wife finds this quite funny and she'll probably tease me about it. But I have quite a strong personality and it's quite intensely what it is so when I decide to do something it's full on 100% no holes barred when I don't want to you know she might want me to 
but I don't want to. <laughs> then it gets difficult. But yeah, so doing the Tour of Britain on the, on the television is a really nice way um, to come back and stay involved in the sport. I'm involved anyway. I sponsored the leaders' jerseys for a couple of years as well, which was quite nice um, with Lacole. And um, yeah, I just really enjoy the race. I really enjoy the riders. I, got, I have good friends in the TV crew. You know, it's just a nice trip to do around the country following a bike race which I'm a fan of anyway so it's good yeah so you retired from racing in 2007 how did you adjust to life off of the bike yeah the short answer to that is very badly now I described earlier about the adulation you get when you get when you're in races and people clapping and shouting your name and stuff and I said it was addictive well I didn't realize just how addictive it was even though listen I was not a Tour de France winning professional I wasn't you know I hadn't won the worlds or so I'm I'm quite a modest cyclist in in the kind of grand scheme of things but I found it really difficult to adjust to the change and the fact that no one knew who I was or cared who I was or that was the feeling that I had leaving the sport because you know you've got to remember when you are a professional athlete you're being invested into all the time it might be coaching it might be nutrition advice it might be equipment it might be travel it might be logistics you know someone's booking your flights for you calling you up and telling you here's your here's your ticket go to this place they'll pick you up they'll drop you off like that's someone taking care of you and when you step out of it you realize how much more taken care of you are as an athlete than you are as a normal person doing an everyday job and lots of athletes I know, and even if they don't admit it, I can see in them, they felt like I did, or they feel a little bit like I do, that I miss it. I say to people, my coaching relationship, I have an amazing, I had an amazing coach for many years. Um, I had two amazing coaches, actually, genuinely. Uh, and the last one, well, the reason I was explaining the coaches is retiring from cycling is like breaking up with someone you love. You know, I don't want to make it sound overly dramatic, but... This is someone you really care about. They look after something that is really important to you, which is your health and your fitness. And they ring you every day to make sure you've got everything you need. You're doing the right thing. If you need any help, they're there to sort it out for you. And if you feel down or sad or whatever, which happens a lot, you know, when you're really tired and you do five or 600 miles a week, your resilience is, is lower than it normally is because you're knackered, like seriously, seriously tired all the time. And this person calls you up, make sure you've got everything you need and helps you work it out if you feel sad or you feel down or whatever. And like, that's such an amazing experience. And when I retired, I really missed my coach. I miss my coaches um, because normally people turn around and go, just get on with it, you know, after that. Whereas a coach would never say that to you. They'd just say, okay, so what's, what's, what's going on for you? What's happening? You talk about it. But like, but like having a therapist in a way, but for performance and for, you know, for your high performance, not for illness and uh yeah it's just a it's just a really kind of interesting experience that I felt quite depressed about I'll be honest when I retired and I didn't actually know I was depressed it took me 18 months so I'll refer you back to something I said earlier about writing a diary this was when I didn't write a diary and it would have helped me a lot quicker if I had because I was feeling negative feelings and I didn't know why and I didn't understand why it was so different and you know, it's a mixed up ball of emotions that you have to try and untangle one strand at a time that's never standing still anyway, because you've got your day to day. I might have had an argument with my girlfriend or I might have tr gone for a job that I didn't get. And those are affecting my emotions as well, all on top of the underlying feelings of not feeling fulfilled, not feeling like I'm in the right place. I am a driven person. I do have lots of energy. And the downside of that is if it's got no direction to go in, it tends to go round and round in circles and start to do a bit of make a bit of a mess, really. It's probably the only way to describe it. So that for me was the first 18 months of retiring in 2007. Uh, it's actually 2006 I retired, uh, but it was March. And um, yeah, it was a really, really difficult time. And again, I, I just couldn't understand it. That was the bit that was upsetting for me. I couldn't understand what the problem was. Once I understand what the problem is, then I, then I go on the mindset of, okay, so what's the answer? And I look through all the things that's going to help me get to the answer. But if I don't know what the problem is, then I can't start that what's the answer process. Mm. And that's just a really frustrating situation to be in. And, you know, that was a really strong experience for me. Um, yeah, I'm glad I got past that. 
What were you doing with your time after you retired? Uh, I wasn't doing any exercise, which was the first thing. That was probably the very first mistake because exercise definitely gives you a feeling of buoyance, like happiness from the endorphins. I'd never had a gap long enough in my racing career, so for like 10 years, where I hadn't been exercising enough to notice that I hadn't got the endorphins running all the time. And when I retired for the first time, that was the first thing that happened that I should have noticed quicker because it would have helped straight away. Um, and when I did notice, I started, I bought a rowing machine and I started rowing in my bedroom just to help me work through the stress and strain of feeling like I didn't know what I was doing. So then I was trying to get a job for the first couple of years. So 2006 to 2008, I was basically getting jobs that I hated. That was another thing that wasn't very nice. And, you know, like I say, back to being ambitious and wanting to achieve something and do something. And I didn't know what it was in. And I definitely didn't like the couple of jobs that I had. And then thankfully, um, I got to a place where I started to come up with the idea to start my own business. And I felt really excited about that. And it probably coincided with starting to exercise again. And I remember having this thought process of I used to get on my rowing machine and I used to try and break my 2000 meter record, which is about 12 minutes for me, you know, and I was trying to break this record all the time, all the time. And I was literally turning myself inside out, just like I did when I was on my bike and just like I did when I was a professional. And I remember thinking I've just converted from one machine, a bike to another machine, a rowing machine. And I'm, but I'm doing the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm taking myself to the absolute maximum and I'm, you know, giving it 100%. I might as well just get back on my bike. So I, so I got one of my old bikes out and I dusted it off and I started cycling again. And I instantly felt better. And that coincided really quickly with wanting to start my own business and then trying to think, what should I start it in? And I remember thinking, I have to start my business in something I know a little bit about already. Now, very, very quickly, you get to, oh, I only know about cycling because that's all I've ever done. I didn't, I have three GCSEs and no A-levels and no other qualifications. So it's not a good place to start when it comes to experience. And, but I was like, you know, I can, I can work it out. You know, I talked to you about just find the answer. You know, once you, once I set myself on a track, then it's like, it's like a tractor beam. I have to, I have to keep moving forward. And I started investigating a couple of different businesses, but I settled on cycling as apparel, uh, cycling apparel as a business. And I just started going through this process and I genuinely didn't know what to do for so much of the time at the beginning. I used to sit at my, I used to sit at my desk. I forced myself to sit at my desk for two hours at a time every day. I'd do two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. And I wouldn't let myself get up, even though I probably didn't do anything for an hour and 50 minutes of it. <laughs> but I was like, I have to do something. And the only way I'm going to find out is by not letting myself get distracted by anything else. So I stayed and I literally sat in front of my computer until I, until I thought, I know, maybe I'll just reset. I'll have a look at this brand or that brand or I'll start looking for manufacturing and asking questions and looking for telephone numbers to ring people and ask questions to. And, and it just started the ball rolling. And then, you know, literally that happened for months and months at a time. And, um, but I started to feel like this can work, you know, and I get my teeth into it and I see some progress and, you know, I didn't let myself give up. <laughs> it's a common theme. So why did you decide to return to racing a couple of years after retiring? Yes. Well, I think if I re retired the first time and stayed retired, I would not have been happy with myself. I, it's like I had unfinished business. But the other thing was starting my business in cycling apparel, which wasn't on purpose. But when I went through my process of elimination of things I know and things I don't know, it came out as the obvious thing to do. Um, I realized I could race for my own brand. I could be a I could sponsor myself, <laughs> uh, which I did. And I remember going to the bike show at the NEC and I had a conversation with a bike brand, Colnago, they were. But it was through the distributor. And a guy called Peter um, listened to me when I said, I'm an ex-pro, I want to come back to racing, I'm going to do it on my own for the beginning, and I'll ride the Premier Calendars. Uh, I'm going to make my own kit, I'm starting my own brand, but I really need a bike. Will you support me? Will you, will you lend me, loan me the bike for the time I need to race? And I still speak to Peter, and I said to him only a couple of months ago how grateful I was that he said yes. And he took a chance, 
and he gave me a bike and some kit and I started to do quite well. You know, I got on the podium on a couple of Premier calendars, which meant I was straight back in the very first season back to being amongst the best in the country. And I was really happy that so quickly I could compete. Um, actually, my very first race back was with another guest of yours, Chris Opie, who uh, we did a race called um, uh, Mid-Devon, the Springtime Pursuits uh, in Devon near Exeter. And we raced this circuit, which finished up this climb for about maybe half a mile. Not a huge steep climb, but like just enough to be really difficult at the top. And I remember thinking, I'm going to drop all these kids now. You know, I was quite, I was getting on for the nearly being 30. I was 29. And there was a couple of kids left with me who were probably 19 or 20. And I remember going as hard as I could from the bottom and getting literally to 200 meters from the line. And there was one person left and it was Chris and he sprinted around me. And he looked at me and smiled and then, and then he won and he put his hands in the air. And I remember thinking, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, that was my first race back. And it was really nice. Like I said, I um, went on to do quite well that year and, um, and then started a team. So I joined a team with both my kit and Colnago. So that was nice. I became, you know, from a one man, per, one man team to a whole team. And Chris became part of that team, which is really nice. Um, and... Uh, yeah kind of so that was that was the getting back into cycling which I was really glad to do and and I felt like it was the right place for me to be starting my business racing and um, yeah the, the interesting thing about it is I knew about racing I was in a place of experience when it came to racing and I, I was a complete novice at business and racing at the same time as starting a business helped me feel good about myself and be humble in business, you know, appreciate that I didn't know very much, but that I could go to the weekends and be a, and be an experienced person really helped balance out my week. So I spent five days a week being a complete novice and two days a week being an expert. And it really worked for me. I felt like I could do this sustainably, which I did for, you know, six more years, seven more years nearly. So how did you balance being a pro rider and building your business it wasn't so much balancing as squeezing it all in <laughs> so um i described you know the five days a week and the two days a week five days a week i split my day with training in the morning always training so i basically i'd always as a as a professional full-time professional not starting a business so before i started the business i'd always trained in the morning and it always came back for lunchtime and then I had a nap in the afternoon. Uh, so I had lunch, shower, change, stretch, a nap in the afternoon. And then you do, I don't know, whatever, read or uh, whatever you do in the afternoons, which isn't cycling, stretching, um, core stability, that kind of stuff. And I decided the right way to do it was be a professional in the morning and be a business person in the afternoon. So that's what I did. And I often worked late into the evenings um, because just to, just to get the hours in the day. And then on weekends, I would travel and race. And during the later years of my career, so 2015 and 2016, I was doing quite a lot of stage races, in particular 2016. So then I was tra traveling a lot, racing stage races all week, you know, 10 day stage races and trying to do my emails on the bus on the way home after a 250 kilometer stage in the rain or whatever, which I remember in Tour of Poland was some of the most savage, savage conditions and trying to keep the business ticking over, you know, negotiate loans with the bank to make sure we had enough money to get through that month and all of that stuff, as well as getting on the bike and uh, trying, trying to do my best as a, as a professional. And I was contracted, you know, it's like when you're contracted, I went back, like if I refer back to when it's your job, you know, uh, to say I'm, I feel a bit distracted with work isn't an option. You know, I, I've I've signed a contract to say I will turn up to all the races you ask me to, to turn up to in the best condition I can. And I will give you the best performance I've got in me. And that's something I take really, really seriously. So I would you know, I never compromised um, my contribution to the team because work was stressful and it was very, very stressful at work. But I also found that two opposing stresses actually balanced each other out. So it's really weird. It's like you've only got enough bandwidth in your head to stress about one thing at a time. So if you've got two, one of them is irrelevant while you stress about the one that matters. And this was like a really bizarre uh, experience because I didn't know that that 
is what it would be like. But I actually found uh, uh, an intense racing environment. I couldn't think about the stress of work on the weekends. Whereas if I had nothing else to do on the weekends, I definitely would have stressed about work all weekend. And then I would have been more tired, I think, during the week because I'd had no relief. So the, the weird co combination, which was very tiring, you needed a lot of energy and dedication and commitment was actually something that suited me quite well. And I found that I was able to do more above and beyond your average. And I look back now and I think it, it is a little bit crazy what I was doing, the hours I was working, the two jobs and the intensity that they are starting a business is one of the most intense jobs in the world. And being a professional bike rider is also one of the most intense jobs in the world. And putting them together is pretty unusual. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite unique, but um, you know, failure wasn't an option and I couldn't support myself off the business alone. At the time I was racing, I was reinvesting all the profits, all the, you know, all the money we had went into growth and employing people. I employed people before I took a salary, you know, for like eight years, I didn't take a salary. I just employed people, built the business, worked for free, did it all um, on the belief that it would become something later and I would be able to retire and live and support myself off it, which I do now. When you started Duckhole, did you ever imagine that it would become as big as it is today? So this is a really interesting question and I've been asked it quite a lot and it's a really, it's a kind of unusual answer. Yes and no. In some ways, I'm frustrated that it's taken this long to become this big, but in other ways, I'm just glad it stayed alive this long to become this big. So if 10 years ago, you would have told me to get to the size we are today will take until 2021, I would have been annoyed. But during the time it took and I was working on it, I was so concerned that the next day could be the last day I didn't have time to be frustrated about how long it was taking. I was just grateful to still have a job to go to and still have a business to, to work on every day. And I can't tell you how intense that experience was, so much so that we're well past that now. And I still remember, and I almost still feel like that because it's like a 10, it's a 10 year habit of stressing that was what made me sharp, what made me look for the answers, what made me never relax, you know, Building a business is like playing Tetris and the pieces to keep coming down faster and faster and faster. And when it's a business that is out in the public and doing its own thing, it's not like you're fully in control of the speed of the level you're playing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you begin Tetris, it's easy at level one. And then you get, you might not know Tetris, but it's an old game where you fit the pieces together. <laughs> it was quite big when I was young. Um, and it gets faster and faster, basically. And you just, you just have to keep up. There's no choice. And as a founder, it's your job to find the answer of the next challenge to the next challenge. But you don't know what the next challenge is going to be. You don't know how long you're going to have to find that answer. And you don't know who you're going to encounter to help you find the answer. Like, this is all completely unknown, which when you kind of describe it like that, it's a bit crazy, but it takes a certain type of personality to do that type of job and I just happened to be so in my early adulthood and childhood I had never met anyone like me but since uh, growing up a little bit more and having met other founders there is definitely a common trait of characteristics in people that have founded successful businesses they always come with a lot of intensity they always have a you know a high appetite for risk whether they knew that that was high or not within what everyone else would would accept and um, they are a very um, kind of roll your sleeves up and just make it work kind of thing mm. and um, I definitely am that kind of person and that's definitely a common sort of type of person that starts businesses and then the other aspect is to the question we're still very much at the beginning so I won't tell you um, how big we are because I don't think it's about that but we are a multi-million pound turnover company and that has happened quite quickly because it wasn't that long ago we were not even one million pounds turnover. And um, but I think the exciting, really, the exciting thing is what's achievable in the potential of this business going forward, I think, is this is still just step one. So it's a bit like it's taken 10 years to get to step one. And then every year from now will be a full step. So we'll have 
will have 11 steps in total in 20 years. And it's really exciting because we've grown a lot from 2019 to 2020. We're growing a lot already between 2020 and 2021. And if we can keep going and do the same in 22 and 23, you know, we really, we really will be a big business and we really will be you know, successful. <laughs> um, but there's still a lot of work to do. So, you know, I'm not relaxed about it and I still have to find answers to problems all the time, but I'm a bit better at it now. I've had a lot more, you know, experience. And um, I also have a really, really good team about me. I think that's also really important. Um, I get a lot of compliments for what the call does that I didn't do anything to do with it. <laughs> you know, I have a really great design team. They do incredible work. They make things look beautiful. I have a really great digital, you know, marketing team. They do incredible things, making sure that people know about us. And, um, you know, we're, we're competing with other big brands in cycling to make sure that if you want to buy some cycling clothes, then at least you've heard about the call and at least you think about us before you spend your money with Rafa or Asos or Castelli or whatever. And, um, you know, that's a really incredible and humbling thing for me as well. I, I actually don't take it. Um, I don't take the credit. I don't want to because I think it's really important that credit is due where it's due. And I would feel false to take it from other people's contribution. So I love that the day before Imloop, the Drops Lacole team released their new kit, which looks awesome, by the way. Uh, I think it's great that a brand like yours is involved in women's cycling. How did that come about? And where do you see the future of women's cycling? Okay, so yes, I really like the Drops team kit as well. And I didn't design it, although lots of people have said I love it and well done. Um, but I, I passed that on to designers. So um, I actually came in contact with Drops a couple of years ago because they were let down by one of their kit suppliers and at very short notice were desperate for a sponsor or a kit, a technical kit partner. And they contacted me and I, and I thought, you know what, I've, I've known about them anyway. I follow them, you know, on social media. So I was like, I had a conversation with my marketing director. You know, it's his job to spend the money, not my job. So sponsorship comes under marketing and investment. And, um, and I said, look, I, this is an opportunity. I really think we should do this. I think, you know, it's not a huge outlay at the beginning. And I, I think it's important that we are part of women's cycling as much as men's cycling. And so that year we had a men's uh, continental team, UK continental team. And then we had a women's continental team, which is drops. And I was really glad. And then basically the, the relationship has just grown really in that we've grown as a brand and are able to support to a greater degree. And they, again, continuing to have challenges with sponsorship and, and that kind of thing. And we decided we would like to step our contribution up and become a, a co-title partner. And um, that it's really important for us as a brand to be equal among men and women, because one, that's just half the population. So, you know, from a really technically commercial point of view, not, not that I have a preference either way, but half the people in the world are women buying things and half the people in the world are men buying things. So if we don't look after the women's side, then we're neglecting a huge portion of the market, which, you know, is just bad business, simple. Um, but I also have a lot of sympathy for the challenges that women have been through trying to get to parity with the men in sponsorship, in salaries, you know, I have a very active wife um, around, you know, equality in sport, equality in, in women's pay uh, uh, compared to men. And I think it's a really serious subject. I have a daughter and a son. So I take, you know, I take that very seriously. And I want to create at least uh, make a, a healthy contribution to my children being brought up in a more balanced and fair environment. And um, all of that feeds in you know, lots of different layers of influencing factors to make me, you know, want to do the right thing, uh, make, make a, at least make a small contribution to a step in the right direction. And then equally, I think, you know, the, the girls at the Drops team are such fantastic ambassadors that, you know, a, a, every brand should have a group of girls that do such a good job as they do. Honestly, they're, they're such nice people. They're so dedicated. They're so committed. They're so competitive. They put themselves, you know, absolutely on the limit every time they ride. But they're friendly. They, you know, they're easy to work with if you're doing uh, photo shoots and all that kind of stuff. They're a pleasure to work with. So really, it's an absolute no-brainer. 
it's brilliant that you're involved <laughs> how do you feel the sport has changed when there's now so much focus on numbers with the development of technology and these of power meters and indoor trainers when you used to just ride a lot more on the field it's a really good question so i am an age where my career traversed the purely on feel for the first five or six years of my of my racing career and then I personally adopted a hyper analytical um, approach in the second half of my career so from 2010 onwards I obsessed about numbers so it's, it's quite it's quite a big question that so it's quite a complicated one personally I prefer the data uh, version I prefer having the numbers I think if you are good at knowing what the numbers mean and translating numbers into experience or into a decision, then you can do very, very well with, um, you know, lots of data. It can sometimes boggle people's brains a little bit with too much data, makes you a bit blind to what's going on and actually can take away a lot of the fun. Um, but if you're a professional and your job is to be better at riding your bike, then the data option is definitely the better option, like hands down. Because if you can't measure it, you're guessing. So if you're guessing and it was good, you can't repeat it. And if you're guessing that it was bad, you can't avoid it. Like, do you know what I mean? So for me, data in sport is something that I took and wholeheartedly committed to in my business. And we operate a very, very data-driven analytical business, as in I can tell you literally every single metric. I can tell you every day, whether it's up or down compared to last, you know, yesterday, last week, last month, last year, last five years. And that enables us to notice changes, notice something that does, does well or doesn't do well. And then if it's a good thing, we do more of it. And if it's a bad thing, we do less of it. You know, it's really simple. So um, I do remember having uh, no power meters and looking at the time and thinking it's quarter past nine. I'll go out, I'll do three hours. If I feel good, I'll go hard. If I don't feel good, I'll go slow. And, you know, that was one way of doing it. And probably it suits some people, but... Um, but I think uh, the data way is probably the more um, it, it gives you more to work with, but you definitely need to use it correctly. So I think actually second cats and first, second and third cats are better cyclists now than they were 15 years ago because technology has given people power meters and data that they didn't have before and made it uh, probably more accessible on price as well, because the first power meters were two and a half thousand pounds and you couldn't get them very easily. And even world tour teams paid, paid for their own power meters. Now you get sponsored. And um, so I think, you know, even first cat riders have benefited from data, but there's probably a time when you need to turn it off and just ride your bike on a rest day. It, you know, it means just enjoying a little spin with your friends or, you know, a quick, a quick spin down to the cafe and back, but it's knowing how to use it, I think is, is the key thing. And how do you feel that, this affects the way that people train and race or even just ride for pleasure also how these things affect young riders coming up in the sport so I do think it changes I think if you're an adult a grown professional adult I think it changes it for the better I think if you're a young person or not a professional or riding just for fun it can actually be quite a negative influence and I think it needs so when I when you asked me about, you know, starting young and, and I said, you just got to enjoy it. Well, I would put this in the category of probably quite serious. If you're using a power meter and training to numbers, you're taking it quite seriously. And that's a risk that you might be doing that too seriously, too young, because it's not going to transform you into, you know, Bradley Wiggins because you looked at numbers. It, what's more likely is it's going to make you tired and psychologically drained and you'll want to give up that's more likely what's going to happen if you get into data and you know a serious way of riding um too young so i think for kids they should probably steer clear of it and for professionals they definitely use it as they should with a coach with an analysis and with context as well so the thing about numbers is and the thing about us when if you look at your um performances purely on numbers you don't have an experience. You don't feel that. So you have to include your perception of your effort as well as the numbers of your effort. So how fast you went, how much power you produced. And sometimes 
you feel rubbish, but your numbers are good. And sometimes you feel quite good and your numbers are rubbish. And it's, it's a bit odd. So if you're using data, you need to include context of some days when you're on a good, solid uh, fitness trajectory, you're getting fitter. Some days you're going to feel rubbish because you're going to be tired. And part of training is doing too much. Part of training is getting tired and your body um, responding to that and getting fitter and better at recovering. But it won't do that if you don't make it tired. But then the being tired in itself means on that day, you couldn't do your max effort or you couldn't do your PB up a climb or something, but you need to include the context. It's quite a mature way of working. And even grown adults sometimes need a coach to tell them, calm down. You were never going to feel very good today. This happened to me a lot. Like personally, I had this experience. I would get grumpy. I didn't do the numbers that I wanted to do. I call the coach and he's saying, <laughs> he's literally laughing saying, yeah, of course you were going to feel like that. Because look at what you've look at what you've been doing the last week. Look at how tired you are. This is part of the overload. You know, it's not until ten days later that you'll feel good about it. But it's surprising how many adults still need that reminder to say, "Calm down. It's part of the process." You're looking at how you feel in too small a time frame. You're looking at it at today, but you need to look at it as this month or this quarter. You know, this three months. So those are really important things. If you're going to use data and take training seriously, you have to have the support. You have to have the ability to keep the context to what you're doing yeah definitely do you get much time to ride now thankfully yes I do <laughs> it's still it's still very very important to me so uh funny story I I am a competitive person but I've managed to keep my competition my competitive characteristics in two simple simple kind of categories one of them is cycling so if you if you're you know sometimes people like try and race me or I don't know whatever they just get a bit carried away and we get competitive like I I will take the bait I will get serious and we will go fast. Um, so I I have also some very competitive friends, and um, and we do you know some pretty fast rides together. And the other area that I'm competitive in is business, but everything else I'm a lot less competitive, say than my wife. So you know board games at Christmas or charades or something she is ruthlessly competitive and normally beats me um but i just stick to what i know which is riding and business but i i'm glad that i still ride my bike and i have you know i have a nice bike and i and i'm really grateful um to 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 kind of you know be able to still ride a nice bike and have a bit of time even with kids uh on the weekends do you have a favorite race that you have done so difficult one that one. There are there are genuinely so many, and I could sort of list a number of them for different reasons. I would probably say the Tour of Britain, specifically two thousand and five. Um, it was a good year. I had a good result. It was amazing to to get a good result amongst that company on home roads. Um, you know, with people shouting and cheering your name. That was that was a great it was a great time, and I love the race. And I you know I'm good friends with Mick, um, who's the organizer. Um, I know lots of people on the organisation as well, so it's always a really friendly place for me to be. Where's your favourite place to ride for fun? That's another really good question. I wasn't a climber when I was a professional, but I probably would say the Alps or the Pyrenees. Um, I've been there plenty of times since retiring. Thankfully, I am fit, so I can ride at a fair pace and enjoy it without feeling like I'm absolutely on the limit just to, just to get up some of those big hills. And um, yeah, I think the Pyrenees is, a, is an incredible place and I would, I would probably choose to go there if I could go anywhere in the world. Who's your favourite current rider? That is also a good question. I would probably say one of two, um, Matthew van der Poel or Wout van Aert. Mm, yeah. Two, two incredible athletes in themselves and also so exciting. They just... They just make every race they ride, you think they could do anything at any minute and pull it off. I think it's very difficult to try and pick between this two. Yeah. Who's your favourite rider of all time? That's another really good question. I think I would say Miguel Indurain because when I really started to get into road cycling, he was winning the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. And... I just remember thinking a couple of things about him. One, he was a complete machine. You know, he destroyed the opposition in the tours that he won. But he was very quiet, very humble, 
And I really like those characteristics along with someone who is clearly incredibly driven and incredibly talented. He wasn't, he wasn't a big ego, you know, he wasn't spoiled or anything, which is easy to happen when the guys get, you know, very successful, paid lots of money and have a lot of, you know, victories and things, but he seemed to have his feet on the ground, but be just as good as, you know, better than anyone at the time. So he's my favorite. So you're about to jump on your bike for a hard training session. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? I have um, very diverse taste in music from Irish folk music to classical music to rock music to all sorts of things. But I would probably say um, Harder Than You Think by, oh, what are they called? I'm thinking off the top of my head now. Um, Public Enemy? Public Enemy, that's the one. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Got a good assistant there. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Yante. Thank you. Have a have a good afternoon and um, well done again. This is a great, great podcast. I'm so grateful that Yanto came onto the podcast and I think everyone can take something positive from this episode. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can get in touch via my Instagram at cycling.talk.podcast. See you on the bike. <laughs>